0: Brother Ryan Mitchell, it's good to have you back here with us, my brother, and I want you to know that New Life Baptist Church loves you, and we're glad you're here with us, and we stand with you. I mean that sincerely. hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight. Uh, we're still dealing with that year-long subject that's on the banner behind me, and that is make a difference. Uh, it's uh, important that we not just uh, stagnate and stalemate and get stuck in the mud. It's important that we have an impact wherever we are and wherever we are involved with and whatever our task or mission is. And so I'm urging you this year to make a difference wherever it is and whatever you do and wherever you have a circle of influence just to make a difference. And uh, I mentioned to you again about praying for this year's May primary when we have a uh, a man who is a Bible-believing independent Baptist running for governor of this state. I'm still convinced that it's important to have a good moral conscience and a good moral direction And I submit to you that it's imperative that God's people not only um, pray, but that they vote. And so if you're not registered to vote, you need to register to vote and vote your conscience. And I urge you to do that. And if uh, you need any assistance in in, uh, promoting, uh, in the case with Eric, uh, Brother John and Brother Mike are involved in that campaign. So if you have a desire to get posters for uh, your yards and whatever, they'll go up on April 4 and April 5. If you'd like to get some from these men, they can help you in getting those into your hands. My point is, make a difference. And if you have not registered to vote, get registered to vote. And then on May, what is it, May 5th, our primary, May 5th. May 4th, so the first thing you do is learn the day that you vote, that's, a, that's the first thing you learn to do, but anyway, you vote, and whatever you have to do, you do that on, uh, on May 4th, so I hope you'll take care of that, and do keep praying for that election if you would, here in Romans 5, a passage of Scripture that has made a difference in my life just from the studying and the and meditating on it over the several weeks. Let me read with you, if I may, verses 6 through 11. We will not get that far for those of you who are already concerned about a long text. Uh, this is about as long as it gets for me in preaching, so uh, we won't get that far. We'll only get through uh, verse number uh, 8 today, so take heart. Verse 6 says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life and not only so but we also joy in god through our lord jesus christ by whom we have now received the atonement interesting and exciting and very uh, thought-provoking passage of scripture and as i said we'll only get through three verses of it but let me direct your attention if i can to those first three verses verse six 7 and 8 for this time together. Let me begin by telling you that it is absolutely amazing to me as a preacher. And as older I get, the more I see and hear and read and understand. It takes a lot more to amaze me. But it amazes me of what the human mind can and will come up with to improve one's worth. You get what I mean when you hear this story. And this is a true story. It took place in the year 2002 in France. And many of you, if you listen to Paul Harvey, you probably heard it. Uh, my son Stephen in Terre Haute emailed me a, a story in, um, in a picture of this particular case. And what it was, it was a 62-year-old man. He came to the emergency room in Cholet uh, General Hospital in France. And he was suffering, what he said, from stomach pain. It was so severe that he could not eat. And he was not digesting his food, and he was just having a very, very painful time. So they took an x-ray of this man. In the x-ray, it was discovered that there was this enormous mass in his stomach, which they eventually found out weighed 12 pounds. And the weight had actually forced his stomach down through and pushing aside many of the organs to the point that his stomach was actually between his hips. And so the man's hips had pushed out and bulged out on either side, and the man was in such excruciating pain that he knew they had to do something. And so five days after the man arrived in the emergency ward of Cholette Hospital, what they did was they performed surgery. What they found was 350 coins. The weight of 350 coins was 12 pounds, and the worth was $650. $650 worth of coins. And also along with that, there was assorted necklaces and needles, all of which this man had swallowed. What was interesting about it, they removed the deadly, damaged, badly decomposing stomach where the injuries had taken place, where the actual tissue of the stomach had been um, injured, cut, and scarred, and ulcerations had begun, and potential prospects of gangrene had. So they removed his whole stomach. Twelve days later, the man died. True story. What's interesting about it, this man had a condition called pica, P-I-C-A. And pica is a condition of compulsion to eat things that are not normally consumed as food. What's interesting further is from the patient's standpoint, it is seen as an improvement on who they are. It makes them feel worthy. you imagine that? To feel worthy that you have to eat coins, you have to deposit into your being like a bank... You have to put something down inside of you that has worth in and of itself so that you will be worth something. Can you comprehend that? Here's a 62-year-old man who died by having $650 worth of worth. Let me say to you, what a devilish trick that mind plays on the human. It's only if, and if only they could have, and that man especially, could have gotten a grip on Romans chapter 5 and what we've been covering for the last several weeks. I submit to you that deception would never have taken place. Because what's written here in Romans chapter 5 is so exciting and encouraging. It shows you something that you will not find anywhere else in any other book. And that is from God's perspective, you are worth something to Him. Or I guarantee you this. He would have never given up His Son for you. If that doesn't speak to your heart about how worthy you are, I don't know what would. I mean, for the Heavenly Father to have an only begotten Son and is willing to give that Son up for us individually, get a a grip on that thing. I mean, that's worth. I've said it before and I'd say it again. You'll forgive me, I care about you and I love you, but I'd never give my two sons for any of you. I wouldn't do it for anything. No way would I do it. But the God of heaven looked down upon sinful, wicked man, and God gave His Son for each of us. Interesting here, you see this chapter 5, and look at verse 6 where we began. He says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Already this chapter has given us some very encouraging things about our security, and I I don't want you to lose it nor miss it, so let me refresh your mind. Chapter number 5, verse number 1, it tells us that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever miss that. Whereas you were once at war with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now at peace with Him if you have believed on Christ, God's sacrifice and His Son. Second thing in the verse number 2 is it says we have access by this grace. This grace is the justification by faith. And its justification by faith gives you access to the Father. Every time you bow your head and say, My Father or Our Father, the way you got that was through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave you access into this grace. The third thing you should note is in verse number 2. He gives you the certainty, the absolute certainty of being eventually glorified. That's what it says. Rejoice in the hope of being glorified in the ideal. And the point is that what God has started in you, He's going to fulfill and finish. God has never started a project He did not complete in its totality. And He did it in His timing. And so the fact is, verse number 2 guarantees God's word is to us, here's part of your security. If God started work in you, He will finish the work in you. And He says to us, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what He's telling you. And then one other thing, He says in verse number 3, He give us something that He's not given to just the general population of the world. And that is this, He's given us the ability to rejoice in tribulation. When trouble comes to the world, they fall apart and go to pieces and jump off cliffs and out of buildings and take drugs and get drunk. But when God's people face it, they realize something overwhelmingly encouraging, that behind all this tribulation... There's the unseen hand of Almighty God that planned and prepared and is promoting this whole idea for my good and for His glory. What He wants from me is to simply take Him at His word. And that is, for all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. And when I take a hold of that idea, then I know that whatever gets into me and gets to me, it has to first pass through his hand. And if it had to pass through his hand, he's got a plan and a purpose of eternal value. I need to rest in that. I need to rest in that. And so he says, that's what you have. Then when you come to verses 5, 6, and 7, and 6, 7, and 8, actually, here, you have the capstone, what I call the capstone of our security. And the capstone of the believer's security found in these three verses, it is the God's love that guarantees your salvation security. It's God's love that guarantees it. First off, understand this. It's the exact same love that planned our salvation before the foundation of the world. You do understand that the salvation we enjoy was planned before the foundation of the world. Then that incorporated us because God's all-knowing. He knew exactly who would receive Him and knew exactly who would not. Before the foundation of this world, God planned the salvation that you and I enjoy so freely and so fully and so fulfilling. Exactly the same love that chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4. It's the exact same love. The same love that sent Him to the cross is the same love that planned salvation before the foundation of the world. It's the exact same love that's found in Matthew chapter 25 and verse number 34 where he says he prepared a kingdom before the foundation of the world. You know why he prepared that kingdom before the foundation of the world? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. It's that exact same love which then gives us the security to know that he who went to all this trouble for so far back, you think for a half a heartbeat he's going to give up on you now? You think there's anything you could do to get God to cut you loose as being his child after all he's gone through before the foundation of the world and what he's continuing to do for you and for me and for the world? You think that for a half a heartbeat, he's just going to throw in the towel and say, I quit. I give up. These folks are hopeless. These folks are helpless. I'm not going to do it anymore. You think so? I don't think so. You want to understand all the trouble he's gone to already, and I'm talking trouble in human perspective, to God, there is no trouble. God speaks and things are. God blinks and things aren't. You know, it's not trouble to Him as it is to us, but you think of all the things that were involved and, and saturated the ideal of planning and programming and all that, and God said, I don't care how much trouble it is. I'll do what i got to do because I love these people. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You see, there's nothing in God's perspective that's too much trouble for the people He loved. Let me take you to verse number 6 and point to you the things that jumped out when I first read the verse many years ago. Verse number 6, the first thing that comes to notice is this, we were yet without strength. That's what verse 6 says, for when we were yet without strength. What that ideal of strength means is, and it starts out describing all people as they arrived or were born into this world. And if you are born, obviously you are, you're sitting here, then this is the description of you. You came into planet earth and you came here without strength. That ideal is as recorded in four other terms or three other terms beside this. In verse 6 he uses the phrase without strength. In verse number 6 he also uses the term ungodly. In verse 8 he used the term sinners. In verse number 10 he uses the word enemies. These are descriptive words of people who are born into this world one time. If you were born into this world one time then these are all descriptions of you. And if you've been born twice, that is, John 3, you've been born again, then this is the way it was, not the way it is. And consequently, to be without strength means to be spiritually sick, means to be spiritually impotent, it means to be spiritually feeble, it means to be spiritually helpless. In fact, the matter is, Paul wrote one place, you're spiritually dead. That's what it is, to be without strength. It means that we're not in any of us any good. We have not, cannot come up with good. It means we're unable to cover our sin. It means that we're unable to change our hearts. It means that we're unable in all of our educational getting. We're not able to understand what the Bible is saying because we're not spiritually connected. It is spiritually disconnected from you if you're still in a state of being without strength, ungodly, a sinner, and an enemy. That statistic or that rather description has to change in order for you to be able to pick up a Bible and say, I understand what he's saying. I understand what he's saying. And the change that has to take place is you have to be born a second time. Spiritual birth will get you into this world to understand what's happening about you. But to understand what God is doing, you'll have to be born again. There has to be a spiritual birth. And the Bible indicates that people who are born once Die twice. You remember the second death the Bible speaks about? Born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. It's a simple equation of mathematics. So it depends upon what you want. Do you want to live forever? And do you want to live with God in eternal blessing and bliss? Then there's a catch. You have to be born again. Born once won't cut it. You'll never come to a point of understanding God, His will, and His word. But here in the context of this verse, verse number 6 starts right out. and says, when we were yet without strength, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, and when we were enemies. God did a wonderful thing. But notice, if you would, the question would be very honestly asked, and I, I accept it and I entertain it. Why should we be told how weak and hopeless and helpless and useless people are? Pastor, don't you understand? People like to hear how good they are. Don't you understand people like to have a positive image of themselves? Don't you understand that folks really get tired of hearing how wicked and ungodly they are? Yes, I do. But don't you understand that you'll never appreciate the love of God until you understand how bad you were when he found you and still he loved you. See, that's the catch. And that's why the world at large doesn't know about and doesn't understand the love of God because they'll never listen to anybody tell them how bad they were so that when God did love them, they realized how great His love was. How great His love was because it loved someone so bad as me. And the description that the Scriptures give us is absolutely amazingly sad. And yet, while I was in this condition, the God of the universe looked down from heaven and He loved me. He who knew me best loves me most. And you can't beat that. I've said it, a um, well, baptistically, exaggeration, I've said it a thousand times from this pulpit over the years. I don't care when folks walk through the front door of the New Life Baptist Church for the first time and say, Hey, pastor, we love you. That doesn't mean much to me. Because, number one, they don't know me. They don't know me. They don't know my ups and downs, my ins and outs. They don't know anything about me. So how could they really love me? Oh, they love me probably from what they see is exterior. But they don't see me at the down times. They don't see me at the discouraging moment. They don't see me when things are not going well. They don't see me in those frustrating, they don't see that. So what they see and what they like is that good thing, that image that's public, publicity, see. But God knows me when I am alone, when nobody else is with me. And he knows my innermost being. And yet he said, I love you. And not only did I love you, but I showed you I love you. I sent my son to die for you. So understand this first statement is so profoundly important. The reason why you need to understand how bad you were is so you'll understand how good God's love for you was. Secondly, you need to see this phrase in verse number 6, for when we were yet without strength in due time. Three little words, but profoundly important. Because you see, it means at the appointed time, at the right historical moment. For God, every moment has a right moment to it. That is, has a right significance to it. God doesn't just throw things out and let them happen, you know. He, he just doesn't do things. He does things at the right exact time. Now listen to me carefully here. It goes all the way back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. For in the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born a woman, and born as it were into this world. That's the John 3.16 of Galatians, Galatians 4.4. What's important about that, God sent His Son to this sin-cursed earth when all the age-old self-efforts had completely come to the end of the rope and there was no hope for man. Man was beginning to understand, hey, look, if something doesn't change, we're in a world of hurt. And it was about that time, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born in a manger in Bethlehem, to be the Savior of the world. I was reading just a few days ago from an old religious book in my library. And what I needed to be reminded of is what you needed to be reminded of. And that is, up to the arrival of Christ, this world had the presence of almost every great so-called great religion and philosophy that has ever been on the earth. That means that they were already introduced already introduced. They were already in operation, functioning, whatever, in some little cell here and there. And historians have drawn this out and proven that these religious philosophies were already on board. When Jesus showed up, what's that mean? It means this. They didn't work then, they don't work now, and they never will work. And God from heaven looked down and said, These guys just going to keep playing religion and mixing philosophy with religion. I'll send my son, and he'll fix the whole problem. And God sent his son in the fullness of time. When he arrived on the scene, so to speak, man was lying in the dust and dirt of frustration of trying to be religious but not having the power to be. And if you're going to be religious, you have to have the power to be religious. If you're going to be good, you have to have the power to be good. If you're going to be righteous, you're going to have to have the power to be righteous. It is not in you. Remember, verse 6, you're without strength. There is no ability you have to do right apart from something God implants. And everything inside of you and everything inside of me that is right, God put there. Everything inside of me that is wrong, I picked up along the way. And I say this to you, my friend, in the due time or in the fullness of time is a crucial point because it says of God, I have a timetable and I'm still working it. And He's still working the one He's on. And nothing you can do or I can do will change it. God's always on time. He's never late. There's a third thing that jumps out at me in verse number six. For when we were yet without strength in due time then the last, Christ died the ungodly. It's always been true the proof of love is ever in its giving. Did you get that? The proof of love has forever been in its giving. We often say you can give without loving but you cannot love without giving. And I submit to you the Bible bears that out. Three verses. Listen to them. John 3 verse number 16. For God so loved the world Keep that in your mind. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice the second verse is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 25. Verse number 25 of Ephesians 5 simply says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church, circle church, and gave Himself for it. So John 3.16, he loved the world, gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.25, he loved the church and gave himself for it. And then that famous verse, Galatians 2.20. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved who? Who? Me. Not the world and not the church, but he loved me and gave himself for me personal see the church or the world is one big large circle out there and sometimes we don't relate well to it and in some cases we don't get connected to the church in some cases we simply just don't get that until it comes down to us personally and when we understand that god loved me and gave himself for me and this verse of scripture the ungodly listed here are those people who are totally unrighteous People who have in and of themselves, no ambition to be like God and no desire to, as it were, to exemplify anything that He stands for. I was reading a book the other day and it had some interesting things about words. It said, uh, this man pointed out that the word impotent, for instance, comes from the same Latin root word as impossible. Impossible. Man is powerless, helpless, and impossible to help him or herself. And to top all that off, the fact that man has a bad attitude toward God when he comes into this world, that's what the ideal of godless means. He is godless. He is ungodly. He has no interest in God. He has no ambition to serve God. We are spiritually bankrupt. There's something else to be noted. There are so many people in this society, and some of which I've met, who, who somehow want to think that they deserve God's love. Two weeks ago in a conversation, a person alluded to the fact they believed they deserved God's love. Now, let me tell you why you do not want to ever believe that. There's an obvious reason why you ought never think for a half a heartbeat that you deserve God's love. One, it's not true. You don't. We're without strength. We're ungodly. We're sinners. And we we're enemies. So that's a reason enough. But there's a reason that you, you personally, would not want to take that position. You know what it is? Because if you believe you deserve God's love, you have to believe there's something in you that is the basis of that deserve. You follow me? If you believe you deserve it, then there's something in you that you believe God sees and says, Hey, I like this about Rick Henry. I'm going to love him. Here's the issue. What if I lose that? What if it were my money? And I said, I know God loves me. I deserve to be loved because I've got money. And I give it to the church. And I give it to mission. What if I lose all my money? God doesn't love me anymore. Well, you say, well, it's your personality. Oh, yeah. I Man, such a personality. That guy's got such a personality. That's why God loves that guy. What if he loses his personality? What if he has a stroke and, and, and he just can't speak, he can't talk, he can hardly walk, he's lost all of who he, what he was, what are we going to do about it? God doesn't love you. You see, whatever it is in you that you think deserves God's love, if you lose it, you lose God's love. You don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's love. Nobody in this world deserves God's love. That's what's so exciting about it. It is an undeserved relationship. It is unmerited. It is not something for which I can apply and plead. It is something that God in His own volunteerism looks out on me and says, "Ah, Man, this guy's a mess, but I love him. I love him. And not only will I love him, but I'm going to give my son for him. I'm going to give up my son for him or for her. Something else. You need to take this to heart. It is only those who know that God loved them in spite of who they are and what they are in their sinfulness who have the security of the believer. And here's another reason. Because, you see, for those of us who've been saved by the grace of God, He has already loved us when we were at our worst. See, while we were ungodly, He loved us. So if He loved me back when I was ungodly, surely I've made some improvements, you see, since I've come to know Him. Since I have believed on His Son as Savior, surely I've made some progress. So if He loved me that much back there to give His Son when I was in that condition, how much more secure should I feel now that I have trusted Him, believed on Him, and desire to live for Him? So the point is, I think logically it follows that that in those conditions, people ought to see that their security is wrapped up again in the love of God. Look at it this way. If you think about it for a moment, Judas betrayed the Lord, and he did so with a kiss, remember? Remember? Peter denied him with an oath, Pilate scourged him, the soldiers plaited and placed a crown of thorns, the Bible says, on his head, and with that same painful mocking, they placed a royal purple robe on his beaten back. The Roman soldiers also are the ones that are credited with nailing him to the cross, and he was forced to bear that cross all the way up to Golgotha's hill. And it was these same soldiers the Bible tells us that cast lots at the foot of the cross after they had stripped him of all of his garments. And there at the foot of the cross they cast lots as to who would get them, leaving him naked and ashamed upon the cross. And then there's that one soldier who walked by after the two were still alive and they had broken the legs of those soldiers. He came to the Lord Jesus Christ and he takes his Roman spear and he gouges it into the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ's side. And the Bible simply says that when that side was pierced from which came blood and water. My point about all that is this. God loved all those men and all those soldiers and all those people. And He loved us. And it was for all of them that His Son died on the cross. Little did they know that all that they were doing against the Lord Jesus Christ and the suffering and the cruelty of the crucifixion They were simply, as it were, sacrificing for their own salvation. I mean, he was dying for the very people who were killing him, and I can prove that. Because while he was on the cross, he spoke these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, while he was on the cross, you and I were on his heart, along with all these people who were being so cruel and unkind to him. Can you imagine that? I mean, you think about it. You think about the people who been unkind to you and cruel to you. Did at the same time they were being cruel to you and unkind to you, did you think in some sense positive and kind and gracious things to them? Not likely. But our Savior did. All it does is exemplifies and illustrates in a very profound and effective way that our Lord Jesus Christ was set and focused on this cause. He came to die for a sinful, wicked, ungodly, enemy world of His heavenly Father. Something else, it thrills my heart to know in, to think and realize that this, what I call, world-changing moment when Christ died on the cross, that God planned that before the foundation of the world. And He so designed it by His love, even knowing how much this world would hate Him and hate His Son, hate His Word, Hate all forms of righteousness but the fact that when he was planning it, in spite of what he knew would be the attitude of mankind toward himself and his son, God's actions were planned, carried out and completely fulfilled in his purpose. Never to have to be repeated again. Never have to be redone or duplicated again. He carried it out from its planning stages in the Time before the world began until it was finished on the cross of Calvary. He did it all and he fulfilled every bit of it all the time knowing how man would react to his son. Can you imagine that? Planning for your son, knowing full well how they're going to treat him and mistreat him and abuse him and ultimately crucify him. Do you understand that? And he did it, and he did it so well in fulfilling and completing the mission that it never has to be repeated again. Listen to me carefully. That's one reason I'm an independent Baptist and not a Roman Catholic. I am an independent Baptist because when Christ died on the cross, he died one time forever. Do you realize that the Mass that the Catholic Church performs almost in a day-to-day opportunity, and especially toward the weekend Masses? Do you really understand that what that is? It's a representation or a repetition, a repetition, a redoing, a re of Jesus Christ, the slain Son of God to the Father. Do you believe and understand that that's what the Mass is technically defined as? A re of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a secret. The Heavenly Father does not need to be reminded of what He planned in eternity past and saw His Son do on Calvary's cross for the atonement and the reconciliation for our sin. You don't have to remind the Heavenly Father. He never forgets in that sense. And I could never be a Roman Catholic because I could never go to Mass because every time I sat there, I'd say, "They're, they're crucifying Christ all over again. They're killing the Son of God all over again. He doesn't have to be crucified again. What He did on the cross, He did it one time, and it is forever. And what's exciting about it, He did it for me. Even as I was ungodly, without strength, an enemy, He did it all for me. Let me understand this and get this in a perspective that you can. You see, there are a lot of people. And I mean this sincerely. There are a lot of good people who have died on battlefields. A lot of good people. And we've, we've lost some fine young people in Iraq, for which I deeply regret. And we all pray and pray fervently for the safety, as Brother John reminds us in our Wednesday night service. We ought to do it every day. We ought to pray for their safety. God is able to keep our young men and women safe on the battlefield. One thing about that is, and you must understand this, you see, those people who are dying there are dying to extend the lives of the Iraqi people and other people of the world. Now, did you get a hold of this? You see, they're, ex- they're dying to extend the life of some Iraqi people. And they'll extend the life of some Iraqis 10, 20, 30, and 40 years. They will. There'll be some Iraqis live 40 years longer because our soldiers are there and protecting them. There are some who will live only a few weeks longer. Because our soldiers are there. But our soldiers are there in part to help the Iraqi people live longer. Establish a government under which there will be some order and people can live in peace and tranquility and live longer. So they've they've come to die to extend their lives. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ did not come to this earth to extend your life 10, 20, 30, or 40 years. He came to die for you to live forever. And see, we somehow don't equate that. The reason we don't equate it is because we don't equate dying and going to heaven as living. You really face up to your doubt. Face your disbelief. That's why we don't get excited about that because we say, Well, yeah, you know, they died. this guy got 10 more years because this guy died for him. But when it comes, Christ died for us so we can live forever. We we say, Well, yeah, okay, yeah, I can can accept that. We ought to be jumping pews because of that. If we get so excited and we're so patriotic about these guys dying to extend years 10, 20, 30, or 40, we ought to jump pews when it comes down to a thing of saying, Christ died so I could live forever. That will excite some people. But the world can't relate to that. And the reason is because our faith is so weak. We believe what we see, so little of what we've been told, and so little yet of what we have not experienced. Here's a passage, and this passage is important here in Romans 5. We skip to verse 7. In verse 7, he says, for scarcely. Now, here's the catch. Verse 6 goes to 7. He says, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Understand Paul's point. Paul's point is very simply this. It is uncommon, unusual, and rather unnatural for a person to sacrifice his life or her life in order to save somebody else's life. That's the point he's making. And you can even carry that. It's even tough to do it for somebody important, a person of some character, some good character. But Paul's point here is to take a deeper step, and that is it's still fewer people would it be that would volunteer to give up their lives to save a person that they know is wicked and undeserving. Look at it this way. What if the American soldiers went to Iraq and every soldier that came to fight for the Iraqi people were to sit at a table and 10 Iraqis had to come up and tell and convince that soldier why he ought to risk his life to save theirs? How many American soldiers would stay in Iraq? You know, that Iraqi who comes up who's anti-American, he comes and says, well, I don't care if you come or not. I really don't care what you do, you know, because I'm going to kill every one of you guys if I can, and I'm going to spit on your president. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to promote Islam, and I'm going to fight for uh, uh, freedom of Islam. And, and you think an American soldier would sit there if he had a choice and say, okay, yeah, I'll die of you, fella. No big deal. I'll die of you. You'll forgive me, but I don't think so. Reason I don't think so because if I were that soldier, I'd be heading home on this plane. If I had a choice, I'd be leaving on the next plane. Paul's point in this case is, he's saying, look, verse number 7. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But add this, God was inclined, knowing full well, verse number 6, we were ungodly and we were without strength. And God said, I'll send my son die for him anyway. They don't like me. They don't care about me. But I'm going to send my son to die for me. That's the same thing as if an American soldier goes over there and listens to all the hate that would spew from an Iraqi's mouth and still say, I'm going to stand and fight for you, my friend. I'm going to stand and fight for you. And that's Paul's point in this context is people won't generally die for anybody. We're just a little too, you know, self-centered. We like to stick around a while. And even if somebody comes up and says, but this is a good man. Would you die for him? Well, yeah might think about it, but I doubt it, then can you imagine God looking down from heaven and saying, look, these people are are ungodly, enemies, sinners, and without strength. But son, I want you to go die for them. And the reason is because I love them. God so loved the world that he gave up his son. Notice something else in verse 8, and we close with this. Verse 8, after he says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 6, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet. Peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But, verse 8, but, we're going to change directions here, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love toward us, while we were yet sinners. That ought to grab your heart. You see here, while we were actively disobedient to and toward God, rebellious against Him, against His Word, uh, He sent His Son to die for us. Can you remember when you were lost and how you lived and how you acted? Maybe you were a drug addict. Maybe you were a drunk. Maybe you got nasty, mean, and ugly and had a bad mouth and, boy, I mean, an attitude to go with it. And if someone had walked up to you during those days before the Spirit of God smote your heart with conviction, you might have very frankly told them off. And then somehow, some way, while you were in that condition God's Spirit struck a chord in your heart to tell you even when you were that unkind, unloving obnoxious, drunk kind of person God loved you enough to send His Son to die for you. And boy, that knocked your socks off. No, excuse me, that changed your life forever. And we've all been there and done that. I know for a fact, and you don't have to tell me, there's a lot of you I would not have liked before you got saved. Forgive me, but you wouldn't like me either. There's a lot of people you don't like because they're not saved. Did you know that? Did you know that's exactly the reason you ought to go share the gospel because that's the way God looked at you when he first saw you and said, hey, by nature, this is not a guy I'd like but I love him and I'm going to send my son to die for him. There ought not be anybody so bad that we would say, I'm not talking to that guy because I frankly don't want him to get saved because I don't like him. We ought to say, hey, that's that guy just like I was before I came to faith in Christ. I say to you that this verse of Scripture underlines that. I ran across something this week just hit me like a ton of bricks. I make it in this statement. It does not matter how wicked, cruel, evil, selfish, arrogant, mean you may be. Listen to me. As long as you are alive, you are loved. Hear what I said? As long as you are alive, you are loved. It hit me this week as I was reading the Scriptures that there's no reference in the Scripture of God loving anybody in hell. There is no. You will look in vain. I went through the concordance. I went through some commentaries on verses. I thought I might submit that God still loves them even though they're in hell. There is no such evidence. God loves those who are still alive and are still able to make choices and those people he wants to be saved and gave his son so they could be saved. But once you die, my friend, there's no evidence in the Scripture that you'll be able to come up with to prove that even people in hell, God still loves. That's not a testimony you'll you'll draw from the Scriptures. In closing this morning, let me leave a verse or two with you. First off, let me leave Colossians chapter number 1 and verse number 20 with you. Paul wrote this. He says, And having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say whether they be things in the earth or things in heaven. That's Colossians 1.20. And what I call your attention to in that verse is the phrase that says, He made peace through the blood of His and actually His own cross. The reason that's so amazing to me is that What you would normally expect is that he made war over somebody killing his son. You you think about this. If you were some African tribe or you were some foreign country tribe or third world country tribe and somebody came in and, and took your son and took him out to the city square, hung him up on a cross and crucified him, and I mean beat him beyond a pulp, were people who even knew them. the king's son didn't recognize him he was beaten so bad he was so cruelly abused they stripped off his clothes they hung him up there and then they pierced him with a spear in the side out of which blood and water came and would you think that king or that prince or or whoever the leader of that country would come out and be just glowingly kindly graciously saying hey look i want to make peace with you guys you believe that would happen let me tell you something. There have been nations wiped out because somebody killed a king's son in some African country. They went out and swiped out the whole village because they killed the king's son. That's not what the Bible says about Christ. They crucified Him and yet God in heaven said that He made peace with men by the blood of His own cross. By His own blood that shed there on that cross, Jesus Christ, God's Son, created a peace for all of us to enjoy by the way there's been a lot of debate and discussion and arguments about um, since the film came out a few weeks ago about the passion about the issue of who it was that put jesus on the cross let me tell you bible believing people don't have to debate that the bible is crystal clear here's the answer it's in isaiah 53 and verse number 10 it said yet it pleased the lord and lord is capital l-o-r-d jehovah To bruise him, that's the son, and he had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. That's very clear. Jesus Christ went to the cross because the Father put him there. And he put him there because there was no other way for there to be an atonement, a reconciliation made for the sins of wicked, ungodly sinners who are enemies of God. One way, the Son of God had to die for sinful men. And that's exactly what the Father knew, and that's exactly what the Father did. And it is all tied up in verse number 9 and verse number 8, But God commended His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me tell you this morning... I've read about, I have not been to, and those of you, and I think Mrs. Sanders have been down in San Antonio, maybe some of the others of you have, if you ever do, you ought to look up a cemetery. It's called Lock, L-O-C-K-E, Hill Cemetery in San Antonio, Texas. In that graveyard, there is a grave marker, I am told, a tombstone, and on that gravestone it has the name of Grace Smith. On that tombstone there is no date of birth and there is no date of death just the names of her two husbands and these sad words listen carefully sleeps but rests not loved but was n- loved not tried to please but please not died as she lived alone is that sad or what That is sad if I've ever heard sad. I never met Grace Smith. But there's something in those four lines that is absolutely not true, even though I never met her. And that's that line. Loved, but was not loved. Oh, yes, she was. While she was yet a sinner, ungodly, and profoundly an enemy of God, God loved her enough to send his son to die for her. I do not dispute that somebody may have never told her, but she was loved. She was loved. And if you sit here at the New Life Baptist Church this morning, there's one thing I do not want you to leave misunderstanding. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how long you've done it. And I don't care how mean you think you are or how mean you really are. I have some of the best news in the world for you. God loves you. And he didn't just say that. He just, just doesn't talk. He acts. God loves you enough to give up his only begotten son to save you for all eternity. And I can tell you this, there's no better news that you'll ever hear than to know that God loved you enough to give his son on you or for you and in your behalf. And yet that's exactly what he has done. A question that you and I need to wrestle with and address this morning is this. Have I believed on His Son? Have I taken God at His word? God said in Romans chapter 10. We haven't gotten there, but we will someday. Lord willing. He wrote in Romans 10 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. The word confessed is a Greek word that means to speak the same thing as. If I say the same thing that God says... Then he says that if thou shalt confess, say the same thing as, if I confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, say the same thing about the Lord Jesus as God the Father says about the Lord Jesus, and, can I, and believe in mine heart that God had raised him from the dead. God made a promise and an oath. He said, thou shalt be saved. Didn't say you might be. Didn't say if you'll do this and ten other things. He said you do this and you'll be saved. What it means is to simply take God at His word. And taking God at His word is to simply understand that God sees this world, saw this world, and will forever see this world as a lost people. A people who are alienated. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, all of us, individually us, have turned to our own way. And the Lord Jehovah God has laid on Him the iniquity of of us all. As far as I know, it's the only verse in the Bible that begins with an all and ends with an all. All we like sheep and has laid all of our iniquities on Him. Let me tell you, that's the good news. And this morning, there's no reason for you to walk out of here uncertain about where you're going to spend eternity. And you will spend, maybe the wrong grammatical word, you don't spend it as if you use it up. Eternity is forever and it never diminishes. But wherever you're going to be for all eternity can be changed by your simply placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. So if you want to go to heaven when you die, and die you will. Die you will. Barring the Lord's return, you will die. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, there is a judgment. And it's at that judgment we get spared because we have someone who is our advocate, who stands in our place gives to us a righteousness that is required for judgment to pass over and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ so here's the question with which you leave how and what is your relationship to Jesus Christ God's relationship to you was he loved you enough to give up his son for you what is your relationship with Christ have you believed on him as your personal savior do you believe he was a good man a good teacher and a gracious fellow and, and and that's all there is to it or is, is, is it personal with you Has there been a time in your life where you said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, just like your Bible says? Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I know I'm a sinner. And I do believe that your Son came to this world to die for me, to pay my sin debt, a debt I could not pay, but I did owe. For your Word says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, eternally so, should not perish eternally so, but have everlasting life. As best I know how, right here, right now, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross in my behalf and rejoice in His resurrection that testifies to the fact that the payment has been accepted with the one who was offended, and that's Jehovah God. And the Bible declares He's the one who raised the Son from the dead. Why? Because the payment was made. And we'll get to that in a Sunday or two on Resurrection Sunday. But for the moment... Do you know Christ as Savior? Is he yours? Is he your Savior? I say to you, he wants to be. And he's gone to a lot of trouble to be so. Our Father, thank you for your precious word that tells us a great truth. This great truth tells us how bad we were and are. But the greater truth tells us how much your love overcame those things. And even while we were as bad as we were, your love was at its best and You loved us and gave Yourself for us in the form of Your Son. How humbling that truth is and how moving and stirring it is and ought to be to all of us. But there may be folks in this building to which this information is all new. Maybe we've not embraced this before. And if so, Father, I pray that You would cause, as it were, a sponge for this to soak up into their hearts and minds and help them to realize that what has been spoken this morning is Bible truth. It is Your Word. It is not the words of a Baptist pastor who's caught up in an exciting but not true ideology or philosophy or religion. This is the Word of God. This can be trusted. We can stake our eternity upon it. Because indeed, that's what we shall do. So I ask you to speak to every heart. And that man, woman, boy, or girl who is here who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I would ask you, Father, that your Spirit might prompt them and draw them this morning down these aisles someone could take a Bible and show them privately from the scriptures how they can be certain and sure that salvation is theirs in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm asking you to do a work that no human can. Work in the heart of men, women, boys, and girls here this morning. And for believers I pray help them to be encouraged by this good news. We are loved. He who knows us best, who knows everything about us loves us most. And how securing that is. And to what Effort has been put forth to give us such security as believers. We rejoice and lift our heads, our hearts, our hands to heaven in thanksgiving this morning for this wonderful love wherein we've been loved. Thank you again for the truth of your word and bless this which we have spoken this morning to the hearts of your people. Encourage and edify the saints and bring conviction of heart to those without. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? And if you need a hymn, book 282. It's the song we sing every Sunday morning, Just As I Am. And that's important and imperative. We sing it just as it is because that's the way we want you to come. If you're here this morning and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, we want you to come just as you are. We don't want you to wait until you try to get better and try to be a better person and then you come. The Bible is very clear that God loved us as we are, who we are, when we are. And he wants to change us from where we are to what we ought to be in his perspective. He has, a, he has a model of what he wants us to be. And it's recorded for us in his word. And step by step, he's taking us from glory to glory. And what he wants you to do is be honest about the first step. And the first step is confessing I'm a sinner. I need a savior. That's where we begin. The fact is, if you're not honest about that, you won't be honest about any of the others. So it starts with absolute open honesty that I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. And that's what, my friend, you must believe first. Then second, that Christ came to take care of the problem, and only he can. Those two steps will get you far down the road toward what is, I believe, the greatest life that can ever be lived, the Christ-like life. May God speak to your heart and bring him to yourself. As we sing, 282 verse 1, and we sing, Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you so much for your time and your attention. I appreciate it deeply, and I do mean it sincerely. Trust that you'll think on these things. And for you who know the Lord, may they be a great encouragement to you. If you do not, may God speak to your heart, even as you try to rest this evening. And may it be that you cannot rest until you rest in Christ. I trust that'll be so. Hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight, 6 o'clock, for the Patch the Pipe presentation and then a message from God's Word. Hope you'll come. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time around your Word. And again, as always, we are always awed by the Scriptures and the encouragement that they are and what they give to us. Help us to fight the good fight of faith, to keep us faithful, walking with you, living for you, and even dying for you if need be, because there is no fear of death to those who know they are loved, who understand the great love wherein you loved us. And Father, I pray this morning that you'd help our people here the New Life Baptist Church and the friends who come to be with us to not walk through the back doors of this building until they're absolutely unequivocally sure and certain Christ is their Savior, heaven is their home, and this life can be lived victoriously. And I pray this morning that you'd move in our hearts toward this great truth. Guide us now as we go and give us a great service this evening at 6. Bless our patch young people as they share in the service. Bring honor and glory to yourself through all that happens then. Keep our people safe. Bring them back to the evening service likewise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. To the bottom.